0: Welcome to the Active Shooter Incident Management Podcast. My name is Bill Godfrey. I'm your host of the podcast. Today's topic, we are going to talk about five common mistakes in active shooter event response and active shooter incident management. I've got with me three of the instructors from C3 Pathways, Stephen Shaw from Law Enforcement. Steve, thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me, Bill.
0: Absolutely. We got Tom Billington on the Fire EMS side. Tom, good to see you again. Good morning. Good morning. And Robert McMahon from the law enforcement side. Robert, good to see you. Good to be here again. You doing well today? I am. All right, fantastic. Okay, so today's topic, five common mistakes. And I'm going to take these in kind of the order of how the response goes and not necessarily which ones are the the biggest sins, if you will. But the first one I want to talk about, and Tom, I'm going to ask you to to, kind of highlight on this one a little bit, is dispatcher training dispatchers can do a whole lot to help you in these events and can help you avoid mistakes if you provide them the training and this is one that obviously has to be taken care of pre-event we teach our guys on the ground the responders on the ground what the benchmarks are that we're generally looking for which is you know the contact teams are downrange, our threat is neutralized or there's no active threat anymore we got our rtfs up they get an ambulance exchange point established, and patients start getting transported. And those are kind of the key benchmarks we're, we're trying to get them to look at. And it's important for dispatch to know about those. But there's other some key benchmarks that dispatch probably wants to hear to make sure that we're on the right track. Tom, tell us a little bit about those.
2: Definitely. We have to remember that the dispatchers are the eyes and ears for all of us, fire, EMS, law enforcement, And so dispatch needs to make sure that they are telling everybody what's going on. Uh, Big things like staging location. If if a staging is established, where is it located? Who has established it? And we need to make sure that, again, law enforcement, fire and EMS know that information. It's put out there uh, because eventually we want everybody to report to staging, not to the scene. And so getting that information transmitted as soon as possible is very, very important. It's important that Benchmarks such as um, when the first arriving officer arrives on, c- on the scene, obviously, that's an important benchmark to note. Uh, when our contact teams have entered or made contact with the uh, bad guy or bad people, uh, things like that. Having those notes and benchmarks and, again, transmitting them, not just to law enforcement, to fire. The fire guys need to know also uh, that, hey, the bad guy may be down or, or hey, um, there's shooting going on or here's the description of a bad person. So things like that, again, just remembering we're all in one team and sending that information uh, to both sides and continually updating it. And we also want to make sure that we have the elapsed time uh, noted and transmitted to both sides. It's important to know uh, after about 10 minutes, letting everybody know, uh, total scene time, 10 minutes, folks, then 15 minutes, folks, 20 minutes, folks, because many times I've been on incidents that last several hours, And unless the dispatcher will remind me of how long we've been there, I kind of lose track of time. And we are dealing against not just the bad guy, but we're going against the clock trying to save lives. So having that reminder from dispatch, that cue that so many minutes have passed is an important part of dispatch.
3: Yeah, Tom, you know, I, um, excuse me. When I uh, was working, I, uh, we had this active shooter incident management training and, I included our dispatchers in that, and I encourage them to keep that checklist at their um, workstations so that if they weren't hearing some of those things going on, like if we didn't establish staging early on, they know we need it, I encourage them to ask, you know, where would you like staging? Where would you like the command post? To help us remember to get some of those benchmark done and help drive that incident towards success.
1: And a lot of times on scene that stuff those conversations are happening face to face or maybe over the phone, but they just don't make it to dispatch. And it's for it's up to the first responders to make sure they're putting that out to the dispatcher so that they know that so they can relay it to other people.
0: So Tom, let me make sure I, I recap those ones that you hit. So we want our dispatchers to be familiar with the with the benchmarks and as Robert said, really, really important that they are empowered to know, you know, if we're five, seven minutes into the incident and nobody's said where we want staging that, you know, probably need to ask about that. If we've got a, you know, do we have a command post set up or it's not clear that we do or we don't have a location, updating information on the suspect. Um, yeah, I think that's important for the cops too because, um,
3: you know, we're we're typically dri- driven towards getting to the bad guy, but we also have uh, some rescue responsibilities in there and, you being reminded that, hey, we're already 10 minutes into this and we haven't started getting, you know, RTFs downrange or or whatever it is that um, helps rescue those um, patients, get them to the hospitals. That'll kind of help put a little gas on our pedals to accomplish some of those things that help that.
0: Yeah, what we're looking for is all patients transported by the 20-minute mark, and that's from the 20-minute of the initiation of the incident. That's a pretty aggressive timeline, and if you start wasting minutes here and there, you're not going to hit that 20-minute mark. So that's, a, I think, a really great role for for dispatch is to keep that clock uh, ever present in everyone's mind. All right, so for the dispatcher training, including dispatchers in training, providing them some education on the checklist, giving them some benchmarks, empowering them to be able to say to whoever's running the scene, uh, where did you want staging set up? Um, can you advise your command post location, those uh, those kind of key things. And I think the other one, and, uh, and I, I want to hit on this, is that it's really important for the law enforcement dispatcher and the fire and or EMS dispatcher, if you've got three of them, they need to coordinate that back channel stuff a lot. So as information gets updated on the law enforcement channel, it needs to get passed over to the fire EMS side and vice versa. It's entirely possible that fire might get to the area and set up a staging location. And if they do, we can shortcut one of the other issues, which is having more than one staging location. We can shortcut that by dispatchers passing that to the other discipline and kind of, and kind of coordinating that. All right, so that's number one, dispatcher training. Number two, getting control of the incident early as part of that initial response. And this really involves the idea of the fifth man. Of getting that tact, getting somebody in that tactical position early in the first few minutes, Robert, you want to talk to us a little bit about about that?
3: Yeah, sure. the The, the biggest problem I think we have in law enforcement is getting our arms around um, the incident and having some control early on. And you know, every one of them I've been to, there's um, there's always a whole bunch of cops running in. Um, to take care of the bad guy, and they're trained to do that. But somebody's got to get control of that early on so that we can organize our response and be more effective at it. And I think one of the the key issues I've seen um, is upper law enforcement command buying into and trusting this fifth man um, concept or the tactical um, operations group. And typically what I see is um, they don't trust – a line level guy to be that fifth guy or to be that tactical supervisor early on in the incident. And um, it's this position is not about who has, you know, SWAT experience or who is the best um, tactically minded person. This is about getting some control over the contact teams and at least tracking um, where they're going, what they're doing um, so that they don't run into each other and, um, you know, have a blue-on-blue blue or and organizing effectively their response. So they're covering the campus um, and getting to the threat and pr- starting to provide those security measures so that we can get other things done, like g- get um, RTFs in there. I think part of what le- lends um, itself to that problem is, unfortunately, Upper Law Enforcement Command doesn't attend a lot of these trainings, and they don't have confidence in what's being trained, that, or they don't simply don't understand or don't know it. And I think if, as upper-level law enforcement command, if we would dedicate ourselves to this type of training so that we could understand the process and trust the process, I think it would uh, help out to um, resolve that issue.
1: And, you know, Robert's talking a lot about the, uh, the, the that fifth man, that tactical position, and that's one that's really key for something like this, there's a big gap between your incident command and your actual officers who are running contact teams or RTFs or perimeter. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that happens in the meantime and that tactical position really helps that incident commander to take a lot of stuff off of his plate to say, and now I can deal with these higher level issues, politicians or uh, you know, upper management or whatever, whatever the case may be um, and let that tactical person deal with the kind of boots on the ground we're So it's a tough balance because we're so programmed uh, basically from an early stage. You come to the academy, we talk about teamwork you work as a team, but essentially you're expected to do this job by yourself. Uh, you ride around in a car by yourself, you show up to work by yourself, you go to calls by yourself, you stop cars by yourself. Um, and then for this, we're asking you to say, look, just pull the reins back a little bit and see if there's something else that needs to be done. And it's tough to balance because you want to get in there, you want to address the bad guy, you want to start treating people. Uh, But at some point, once you have enough people there to kind of address that issue, at some point we have to slow down and say there's some other issues that need to be resolved here. Some things we'll talk about later like our priorities. Maybe my priority, if I'm there 10 minutes into the incident, my priority might not be to go after the bad guy. My priority might be to start securing some areas so that I can Start treating people, uh, but there's got to be somebody there who's got a, who's got a higher level view of what's going on in this scene to say that because it's tough for me as a responding officer to to look at this big picture and know what to do there, and it's just something that we have to work on in in training and also in just our day to day. Is uh, you know incident command is not something that law enforcement does a lot of. We do it, but we just don't call it that, and so we're kind of unpracticed at it. But it's it it's very, very crucial, especially when it comes to something as complex and rapidly evolving as like an active shooter or a terrorist attack.
3: Yeah, yeah Steve, you and I talked about this just a little bit um, uh, before the podcast and that you know we exercise this uh, tactical concept with our SWAT teams, and you and right. I had similar uh, experiences with that where you had a tactical leader that would be running different elements of that um, SWAT team. Well, it's the same concept here, only we don't have the luxury of time to wait for that guy to get there. And somebody's right. got to step in and, and take charge of that early on, right?
0: I think those are really, really good points. And and the, the other thing that I I don't want to let get by here is, Robert, you know, you you said it doesn't necessarily have to be the tactically minded guy in the first few minutes. We just need somebody to kind of get it organized. and And the whole point of this is saving time. It's not that you can't have the first 30 officers rush in and wait for the lieutenant to show up or the sergeant to show up and begin to organize it. You can do that, Um, but it's not going to be as fast as if you organize it before you've got 30 people there. Yeah. If you can get some organization to it, and at least as those guys are going in, those guys and gals are going in, get them organized into some teams so that you can m- make some assignments. You can do more than one thing at a time. You don't have 30 people committed to um, standing over the bad guy that, that they've neutralized. Uh, you've got uh, a couple of teams that are committed to that. you got some other teams that are working on other things. And so really it, it's not necessarily about you can't – Do it the other way. You can. Yeah. It's just not fast.
3: It. The longer you wait to get this done, the more people you have downrange looking for the bad guy or doing other things, the longer it's going to take you to organize this and get
1: your arms around it and
3: start to accomplish those other benchmarks that
1: you need to do. And it's
3: inefficient.
1: Uh, A lot of things happen twice. Uh, A lot of areas get cleared twice that don't need to be cleared. Uh, And then we're leaving other things Uh, that, that have not been done yet. So like that, that crowd of 30 people running around, it can do one thing very fast, but we're trying to accomplish 15, 20, a hundred things during this incident and and they they all need to be done. Uh, so it's just incredibly inefficient if there's nobody running all those teams.
0: Okay. So common mistakes, we're going to rehash them, uh, not getting our dispatchers, the training they need. Number one in, in our list. Number two, failing to get control of this thing early, and that's one that falls to law enforcement because they're the the first ones in there. And then the number three item is staging. Um, Either not establishing staging, having more than one staging area, waiting too late to to establish it. Um, Tom, walk us through one of the, uh, you know, walk us through that reasons about why we need to have one staging area, and then... Um, Steve and Robert, I'm going to come to you guys to talk about how law enforcement can really benefit from using staging. But, Tom, can you talk a little bit about why we need to have one staging area?
2: And definitely, Bill. You know, before I became involved in the active shooter realm of fire rescue, we also had our own staging and we did our own thing. And this new active shooter realm that we live in today, it isn't just fire rescue. It's fire rescue and law enforcement and other agencies together. And obviously staging is not just a place to park. It's a place to plan and to deploy resources. So it's important that we have all those resources in one staging area, meaning the law enforcement and fire and EMS folks are together. So when we go to to set up a RTF, a rescue task force, we're all together. And we have a law enforcement person doing staging that knows the law enforcement lingo, knows the qualifications of the personnel that are at at staging. And so it's a one-team thing that we have to do together. Having separate stagings would add so much time and confusion to the incident It would be terrible.
0: So, Steve, um, how important is it, do you think, for law enforcement to not just have one staging area, but to be in the staging area with fire and EMS?
1: I think it's incredibly important. Uh, A lot of times, your law enforcement, you may know some individual firefighters. You may know some individual, you know, truck teams or something like that at your location. But for something like this, you may have people from outside. You don't know these people. You don't know what they have. Uh, And if you're paired up on an RTF with these people, then you need to get introduced to them. You need to know that, like Tom said, we're on the same terminology. We're using the same language and all that. So it's extremely important. And then it even comes down to making sure that our own gear is squared away. You know, it's difficult for me to pull up in my patrol car right in front of a scene and there's something going on, shots being fired or something like that. You know, I have to get my own stuff squared away, my plate carrier, my rifle, if I have one or whatever kind of other equipment I have, an active shooter kit or whatever the case may be, that staging area, uh, once we get into the incident a little bit, maybe not when there's shot's being fired, but that'll help me get my own gear squared away so that I can deploy to that scene effectively.
3: Yeah. You know, having, uh, we, we've talked a lot about RTFs in the training and, um, I've literally seen, um, and I've been to three active shooter events at schools, I've seen the medical side of RTF stood up in staging without a single cop to put with them. And there were hundreds of cops on scene. And so I think that's a, a, a tragedy because the RTF has got to get in there and start um, providing medical treatment, advanced medical treatment, and getting people out to a hospital. But the other thing, you know, and I mentioned hundreds of cops on scene, every one of these <clears throat> that I've been to, we have an overconvergence of law enforcement on these scenes. And it I don't care who you are as fifth man, you can't control hundreds of cops um, by yourself. And you can't control them after they're on scene running around doing things. And they'll be in there doing things for a long, long time And you won't even realize what they're doing or who's there. Excuse me. And so uh, the staging area is so incredibly important for us as law enforcement to um, embrace because it's going to help drive a successful incident. It's going to help take time off the clock. And it's going to provide us resources to provide other functions that we need to do rather than Try and figure out, okay, which 50 cops can I pull out of here to go do this? You have them at stage, and you can make an assignment, assign a supervisor to them and, and just pass that off to someone to get done.
1: And with that over-convergence of cops, like I was saying earlier, those cops are mostly going to be in cars by themselves. And where do cops park? you know, wherever they want to. That's right. right? (laughs) Uh, So now we have people that are bleeding out uh, possibly, and we can't get ambulances in there to transport them out because we have police cars parked all over the place. That staging area allows us to consolidate vehicles. Maybe if we're on RTF, we just get on a fire truck. uh, And then we don't have to worry about all these vehicles that are everywhere. So we can open up parking. We can open up ambulances. I'm sorry, routes for ambulances. Or we can open up routes for additional responders if we need to
2: you know, Steve and Robert, just backing up a little bit, and a big issue also with those 100 law enforcement officers is accountability. And I think staging is an important part for accountability, especially for law enforcement. Your fire rescue systems usually have good accountability systems where we can usually track down where the firefighter last was if there's a, an issue or they get lost. But if we have a lot of law enforcement officers down down on the scene and we don't know who they are or where they are, we lose accountability. God forbid one of them was is injured or killed. It may take forever to find them. Staging is a good point to start having accountability of sending teams, knowing what frequencies they're going to be on, knowing where we sent them, and so we have a better way to account for them if something goes bad.
0: I think all of this is fantastic stuff. The other thing that it makes me think of is just the the general function of staging is to get your crews assembled and assign them a task and purpose. You know, Robert, you were kind of alluding to, you need the guns downrange, but you need them downrange doing what you need them done at the time you need it done. And if they've already gone downrange, trying to get them to disengage and change tasks is difficult to do, especially if you don't even know they're downrange. So the the key ingredient for staging and, you know, one of the reasons for having everybody together is that, you know, some of these teams and things that need to be done are going to require cross-discipline integration. We got to put fire EMS with law enforcement, put some teams together and give them a task and purpose, give them an assignment so that when they go down range, they're working on what needs to be worked on when it needs to be worked on. That's correct. Yeah. I, so I, I think that's a, that's a huge issue. So when we talk about staging, I think there's several actually kind of sub bullets under staging is one, we need to stop the overconvergence. Because it just slows us down in the end. It, it takes does. longer to get things done. Um, we need to have a single staging area, not multiple staging areas by discipline, one staging area so that the crews can quickly be organized, and then we have an effective method for assigning task and purpose and sending those resources down range. So to recap us here um, on our five common mistakes, number one is failing to include our dispatchers in training and making sure that they're prepared to help us in one of these events. Number two is going to be getting quick control of this thing early on from the law enforcement side, some command and control, which we advocate obviously through the fifth man concept. And then our third one that we've just talked about is staging, the importance of staging the role that that plays. So number four is going to be having more than one command post. And it feels weird to even say that out loud, but it has happened so many times. Um, Robert, let's start with you. What are some of the problems that crop up when you have more than one command post?
3: Well, when you don't have fire and law enforcement um, hooked together, um, things start happening and you need the resources that the other one has or you need um, collaboration on what we're trying to accomplish downrange with both disciplines. And when, that, when you don't have them together, you can't do that. And, and I was involved in a um, uh, shooting event where an officer um, was killed. He was He was missing for a while. And we didn't have law enforcement and fire together. In the command post and when we got the officer rescued those um, medical resources weren't available immediately as quickly as they should have been um, at that point because we weren't working together and um, we can't have that that's just inexcusable um, it's inexcusable on both sides and so you know especially in a complex event like this where you got a lot of patients and you got both disciplines working together to accomplish certain things like rescue task forces. Um, you got to have them together. Uh, we're passing information back and forth about patient counts, um, where ambulance exchange points are. It, it's a multidiscipline event that requires um, the marriage of those disciplines to work together to get this done.
2: You know, Robert, I've been on many scenes. I, I was actually on a scene where there was four separate command posts, and it turned out that they were just meeting places for people that knew each other to drink coffee, and it's really unfortunate. And so it's so important to get the the folks together in the one staging or the one command post or at the command post location uh, to work together Um, because that's another issue. I've been in the command post with other, uh, other agencies, other fire agencies, and they were doing something opposite of what I was doing, which is my fault too. And so again, it's not just a room that's air conditioned that has coffee. It's a it's a workplace where, as a team, we need to put our heads together and come up with uh, the priorities of what we're going to do down down on the field. Um, it's just so easy to get caught in your your silo if you're in a separate facility. But also, when you're together, it's also easy to stay in your group at the corner and and uh, not work amongst each other. So it's it's important we pull these. Uh, issues out ahead of time and work together in these command posts.
3: I, I can also tell you where it works well. It really works well. I, I had a, a fire chief in Castle Rock, Colorado, Norm, Norris Kroom, I'll just shout out to him. We worked really well together. When Norris and I showed up on a scene, we knew how to work together. We had that relationship, and we developed that relationship prior to the incident, by the way. But we married ourselves at the hip, and whatever we were working I would ask Norris what he needs, he would ask me what I need, and we had that working relationship. And it was just amazing the difference when you have that relationship and you have that uh, marriage of disciplines together.
2: Well, the big thing is you just said his name. That says it all right there. When you know that person beforehand on a first-name basis, the command post and command operation will go so much smoother. So it's so important. Good point, Robert.
1: One thing that I've actually seen this happen on two different incidents that we had law enforcement will set up a command post like 50 yards away from the incident and the fire are, they're just not comfortable with that. Uh, and this is like a shots fired incident, not like a, not something. So we have to be careful as law enforcement that when we're establishing our, our command posts, that it's not right up on, right up on the scene because this, this happened on both of the incidents that I saw, Fire kind of pulled up, asked dispatch, where's the command post? Dispatch told them. Fire gets there, looks at it, says, no way, Jose. And they backed a block down the street, and they just started running their own thing. So we had separate command posts that were trying to work together, but they just weren't in the same location. And what happens is communication becomes almost impossible. Uh, You're trying to call people on the phone or trying to call people on the radio, but there's there's a million other things going on. And it just if you're not right there together, shoulder to shoulder, where I can just tap. My fire uh, counterpart on the sh- on the shoulder and say, "Hey, this is what we need." It, it like I said, it, j- it just gets almost impossible.
0: You know, we've seen sadly a number of very significant consequential uh, active shooter events where they ended up for one reason or another with separate command posts. Whether it was uh, just the way the the scene unfolded, the order in which it got done. And they didn't fix it. And I think that's, you know, one of the, one of the things that, you know, almost ought to be a mistake of its own. Look, some of these things are going to happen. You're going to end up with more than one staging area by accident. Okay, fine. Fix it. You're going to end up with somebody who set up a, you know, the battalion chief calls up a command post because he didn't like where the law enforcement was. Okay, fine. Fix it. Get into one command post. Mistakes happen. That's the nature of the beast. It's what you do with it. Don't let that go on. Just because you've started there doesn't mean you need to finish there. You know we we talked about this in um, just recently in another podcast. The pain of fixing the problem as soon as you recognize it is nothing compared to the pain of trying to suck it up and continue to make that mistake work. And, and I think that's a, a big one that really needs to be a strong takeaway here is you need one command post for all of the reasons that everybody here just talked about. And if for whatever reason it doesn't start that way, fix it.
1: And that's one, you know, kind of circle back to one of our other issues when we were talking about uh, getting control early with that tactical position. If I'm a law enforcement incident commander and I realize that maybe I'm in the wrong location, or just uh, for whatever reason, my fire people have set up a command post in another location. It's a lot easier for me to tear myself away from that incident for five minutes to drive down the street to meet up with them. If I have somebody who I trust, like Robert was saying, this downrange that has eyes on that can kind of run that scene for the few minutes while I'm gone. Uh, so I think that's. Where getting control early and trusting your people and equipping them becomes super important, like you're saying, Bill. If we if we realize we haven't it, if we realize we're making a mistake, it's a lot easier to fix when we have people who can fill those holes for us.
0: Yeah, you know that kind of makes me wonder, um, Stephen Robert. You know, the situation Stephen was just talking about, where the command post ends up set up across the street from you know a, a, a shots fired scenario, is part of that happening because. In those cases, they're not delineating the role of tactical as being separate from the role of command, and and the command post is really actually more the tactical.
1: I think that's part of it. Uh, that's a that is a fairly it's not well it's not a new concept. Like Robert was saying, you know, we use this all the time in SWAT world, but a lot of times when somebody starts directing traffic, for lack of a better word they essentially become the de facto incident commander in, in law enforcement's mind. Uh, we have trouble delineating that there's two different things. There's kind of like a, you can think of tactical as like a forward operations. We're running contact teams, whereas a command post is more of a high-level, big-picture uh, controlling, the uh, you know, kind of a cliche term, but this 30,000-foot view that we refer to a lot of times. The other thing, I think, is we in law enforcement, when it comes to things like shots fired or something like that we have a different level of risk acceptance than fire does and it's because we deal with it a lot more and it would be it would be you know exactly inverse if we were dealing with like a structure fire firefighters are well more way more equipped uh to deal with that and have way more knowledge and experience to deal with that whereas we may be like, yeah i don't want to go there firefighter may be telling us Oh no, it's fine you know look at the level of the smoke or whatever uh so i think for us we look at it and we say, "Well, you know, we're down the street. It's probably not going to. Bullets are probably not going to get here. Uh, it's just a. It's just a different mindset, I think.
3: Yeah, I agree. Um, and and the big problem, like you were alluding to, Bill, is is um, command typically tries to do things that are they're they're trying to direct tactical operations. Um, and they really shouldn't be doing that. They're getting too far down in the weeds, and they're not mm-hmm. looking at the big picture and how to support the incident and how to support the resources downfield or downrange.
1: Law enforcement is not used to trying, to trying to manage an incident that they can't see with their own eyes. And exactly. it's difficult, like Robert's saying, to not. And the reason why is because you're trying to direct every single little thing. Uh, and it's hard to do that when you can't see it and it's just something that we have to tear ourselves away from there. I think there's other stuff that's going on that we have to focus on. We got to leave somebody else in charge of this stuff that they can see it, they can run all this little stuff. I need to think about the big picture.
0: You know, that's really not dissimilar from the fire service and the fire service experience. I mean, 90 I, I you know, I don't know what the number is, but it's well over 90% of the fire service operations are run in a single tier. The battalion chief is directing everything, whoever the incident commander is directing everything from the curb where they can lay eyes on it. The number of times that you're actually running uh, a fire operation where you cannot see the incident and you can't see what's going on are very few and far between. And while there are a number of people in the fire service who have experience doing that and are quite good at it, they're the exception, not the rule. The, the bulk of the time, it's very, very similar. So I think that's something we actually share across the cultures between uh, law enforcement, fire EMS, is that that uh, pull to be watching the thing, to be up close enough to, to see it.
2: I think what Bill said earlier needs to be said again. Fixing things, it's so important. I remember as a young firefighter paramedic, we had a warehouse fire, and it went on for hours and we had messed up. There was fire trucks parked in the wrong place. There was hose everywhere. And one of our district chiefs showed up, one of my mentors, and he said, All right, this isn't gonna be pretty, but shut it down and move everything, do this, do that. And we did it. And while we were doing that, the fire kind of reared up again. But once he got us in order of where we needed to be, we put the fire out. And it was a hard decision. A lot of people were saying this is crazy. Look what's going to happen. So Bill, that's such a good point. It really takes a strong leader to say, "Okay, we've we agree we screwed up. Let's fix it and then do it."
0: I think that's a great point. Great point. Okay, so let's recap where we're at. Our our five list of five common mistakes. Number 1 is failing to get dispatchers the training that they need to be able to help us in an active shooter event. Number 2, getting control of the event early, which is predominantly going to fall to law enforcement, just the nature of the beast. Number three, staging, not getting staging set up, not having one location and avoiding the overconvergence. Number four, separate command posts. And then our final one, number five, is failing to shift gears when our priorities need to change. So as we set this one up, I'll just remind everybody, The priority is, number one, the active threat. Number two is rescue of the injured. And number three is clearing and return the scene to a a time of safety. So active threat, rescue, then clear. But what we see sometimes, law enforcement can have a difficult time shifting gears and moving from the active threat to rescue, when there's a question mark about the bad guy. So when the bad guy is neutralized, in custody, down, whatever the case may be, those are usually pretty clean transitions, not really where the problems occur. But when the shooting stops, and we don't know why, did the guy kill himself? Has he left the scene? Is he still on the scene? Is he at large? We don't have answers to those. There's no closure to it. That seems to me... To be one where um, law enforcement struggles a little bit because the tendency is I got to find the bad guy, I got to find the bad guy, I got to find the bad guy, and we can lose valuable time and minutes in shifting gears. Um, Robert, is that is that is my perception off there that that's a challenge?
3: No, that is a challenge, and um, it's it's difficult for us because we want to go. Stop that threat. And so much of our training, especially early on, is we're always looking for the next bad guy, that there's going to be one more, there's going to be one more, there's going to be one more. Um, but remember what drives us um, during dealing with the of threat is stimulus. What are we after here? Um, where are we going? What's driving us? And when we run out of that stimulus, it's hard to shift gears. But we also have to remember we've got – Um, another mission and that's rescue we're battling the clock not just the bad guy and we've got to shift gears in order to start um, dealing with patients and start to help them I, i think part of what happens with it is we don't have control of it early on like we talked about earlier and there's no one there to say okay let's shift gears it's okay to keep looking for the bad guy but we also have some areas that we've already been into that we have, we know we have patients. So we can start organizing those contact teams and their roles um, a little bit better and say, okay, contact one, you've got this area, um, you've got patients there, secure that area, and let's start working patients there. Contact two, you don't have any patients, so keep searching for the bad guy. Uh, you can, You can organize this thing and control it, in a way that helps us shift gears and helps us with that, um, change in response
1: when the stimulus goes away. Yeah. I agree with what Robert's saying about having somebody there to kind of drive that, drive that shift. Um, I think under stress, people are going to do what they're most comfortable doing and, and cops are most comfortable hunting a bad guy. Um, we're not as comfortable treating patients or counting patients or, uh, really if, the, the one thing that we that we pretty much probably all have in common is every mission is important it may be extremely important for me to hold a stairwell but f- for me and my cop mentality if i feel like there's a bad guy out there and somebody tells me to hold a stairwell that's uh that's going to be a tough pill to swallow uh there was a debriefing that i went to um a couple weeks ago about an incident that happened a few years ago out on the west coast where actually they had two officers that were killed on a traffic stop and the incident commander there had just gotten promoted out of investigations and at really really recently gotten promoted out of investigations and so under stress she did what she was kind of comfortable doing which was investigating the scene she started canvassing the neighborhood and stuff like that rather than searching for the shooter um, so I think that's one thing that it, if we have that tactical person there when we have a when we have a pause, shooting has stopped. We're not sure why. We have a pause. There's got to be somebody there to say, "Look," and this is again tying it back to staging, where we know who's there. We don't have an over over convergence. We have somebody there to say, "Hey, contact Team Three. I need you to stop searching, and I need you to start securing an area so that we can start counting patients. So we can start bringing RTFs in." It's really important, and like I said, just under stress, people resort back to what they know. Cops don't know treating people, for the most part. Now, there's some out there, there's a lot of departments that have started offering that training and whatnot, and I think you're seeing some good results from that. But for the most part, we're just not comfortable doing that. We're comfortable hunting a bad guy, and that's what we're going to resort to if there's nothing to drive us into another priority.
0: I, I think that's true, and Tom, you know, chime in here as I as I kind of say this but from a medical side so when you look at the statistics on the date of the active shooter uh, these active shooter events the median number of people shot in these things is four two of two of which are killed so the typical active shooter event we're actually talking about a small number of patients and you know occasionally it can go over that and occasionally it goes way over that but those are the exceptions not the rule you're usually talking about a small number of patients and I kind of feel like if, if we can just get one contact team that focuses on getting the cash collection point set up, or just whatever needs to happen, whatever whatever that that contact team stuff is that goes on, whatever they need to do to get it ready to receive the RTFs, then the RTFs can push in with their security and take care of that. I mean, Tom, do you, you see the same thing?
2: Most definitely, and I think. Again, that comes with training. And many times in these classes, we'll t- I'll talk to a law enforcement officer, and I'll go, how many tourniquets do you carry? And he goes, he goes well, I carry one. And I go, what's that for? He goes, my partner or me. And I go, what about somebody that's injured? Well, no. Again, it's just training that, well, maybe you have the opportunity to save a life. And if it's just one or two people, uh, that contact team that focuses on that can make the difference between life and death, that, that one small point. Um, and again, getting the RTF in there as soon as possible we're waiting on that contact team to tell us it's safe, to tell us that, yes, they have a capture-to-collection point. So we want to get in there soon. But the, the sooner that the contact team does that for us, again, we're cutting time off the clock.
0: So I want to ask uh, Steve, Robert, you know, one of the things that we advocate when we're, when we're doing our training, and we kind of tell people this, is that, hey, when you go back home and you're doing this training, make sure that your scenarios include one where the bad guy just ghosts out. The active threat. Is a ghost, and you don't know why to force during training people to face that and deal with that and get that muscle memory of okay, I, I haven't had anything else go on for fill in the blank, and uh, it's, it's time for us to shift gears or start thinking about doing something different. How important do you think that guys that guys, that, that actually is in the law enforcement training?
3: I think it's hugely important and you know, I've conducted some of these trainings with you and and I see um, these guys in, in training really have a hard time slowing down looking for that bad guy when that threat's gone silent and they really want to keep looking and um, but it's not serving the purpose. And here's the thing, if if there's if that bad guy's doing other stuff in other areas We'll know it. We'll receive that driving force information, whether it's um, hearing the shots or um, calls, more calls to nine one one coming more, in, more witnesses calling nine one one. We will know as soon as that starts, um, and then we can go respond to it. But in the interim, um, and and I think most events don't go that way. If the bad guy goes silent, they're they're gone. They've gone silent for a reason, and they're not usually not a threat anymore. Um, but in the interim, until we figure out where they went, we we do have patients to take care of, we, and we're against that clock. We say it over and over and over and over again in this training and the podcast. We're up against that clock, and we're about saving lives.
1: Yeah, the the training side of it is is hugely important. Again, like I said, people revert back to what they know, and what we're what we're really talking about is the evolution of active shooter response, right? pre-99 uh active shooters were a SWAT problem and then columbine happened and for about 10 or 15 years it was all about pushing patrol to get in there and address the bad guy and we got really really good at getting in there and addressing the bad guy now we're seeing the evolution shift to all right now we're addressing the bad guy but there's all these other things that have to that have to happen And the first thing that has to happen after addressing the bad guy is addressing all the people that the bad guys hurt. Because we talk about, you know, our, our victims and our survivors having two different enemies during this event. One is the bad guy and the other one is the clock. And if the, the first ones that are in there are going to be police. And so, their first medical intervention a lot of times is going to be a patrol officer and it could be just a patrol officer securing a room and getting a number to someone so that an rtf can come in it may be like thomas saying having an extra tourniquet on you maybe you know having an and a few extra bandages or, or something like that but but some something has to be done some sort of medical intervention to help stop to stop that clock or to slow it down and so i think again like like i said you're you're we're we're kind of participating in the evolution of the response here from SWAT to patrol. And now we're looking at the medical side. And so I think the training side of it, you have to enforce those principles. You have to enforce that, that thought process that just because, uh, we're not hearing shots, there's still something I can do rather than just make a room entry.
0: I think that's a fantastic summary. So guys, I'm going to wrap this up with just summarizing our list of the five common mistakes. Number 1 is failing to get dispatchers the training they need so they can help us. Number 2 is for law enforcement to get control early on via the fifth man or uh, some other type of method if they don't, you know, don't like that one, but get control of this thing earlier. Number 3, staging. One staging area to stop the overconvergence. Make sure we got a task and purpose to get people Uh, organized number four having separate command posts can't have that need to fix it and number five failing to make sure that we include in training the training for officers to recognize when they need to shift gears from from the threat to rescue and not skipping over rescue to jump right into the clear Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. Again, these are, you know, these are not the only mistakes that we see by far, um, but these are five common ones, and I thank you for coming together to, to talk about it. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have not subscribed, please hit the subscribe button to, uh, to make sure that you don't miss out on any future podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for topics, send them to us, info at c3pathways.com. Until next time, stay safe.